Welcome to episode 174 of the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Welcome and thank you for joining us. We're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government. Uh, joining us for the news roundup are uh, Brian Egan, uh, Steptoe partner uh, in our international regulatory and compliance practice and former State Department legal advisor, uh, and in a uh, new departure, a new feature. Uh, we're going to have uh, Josh Holtzman, who is a rising third year uh, at Harvard Law School and a summer associate here at Steptoe, uh, join the podcast. Uh, Josh, welcome. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, and uh, I'm, and, and, and I should say, anybody who wants to be on the program in that slot just has to get a summer associate slot with Steptoe, and they're, they're golden. Uh, uh, so I'm hoping that that will dramatically increase applications to the Steptoe Summer Program. Uh, I am Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, and the record holder for returning to Steptoe to practice law more times than any other lawyer. Let's jump in the unavoidable, the inevitable uh, uh, lead uh, is uh, uh, President Trump goes to Warsaw, it meets with Putin, uh, uh, engages with uh, uh, Merkel, uh, um, and you know, we had, it was a kind of remarkable thing. Uh, uh, the meeting with Putin goes way over expected uh, time. Uh, uh, everybody agrees that uh, President Trump brought up the election hacking. Uh, um, uh, Putin says, I, we put it to, to bed and uh, uh, the president agreed with me and we moved on. Uh, that's not quite the um, outcome that uh, is, uh, uh, that the President's side uh, suggested. Uh, um, then over the weekend, we had uh, a cybersecurity unit, joint cybersecurity unit, created and dismantled uh, in less than 48 hours, uh, a, a short tweet cycle. Right? Um, uh, Brian, uh, what's your assessment about what this tells us about the state of play in terms of cyber issues between Russia and uh, President Trump and, I guess, uh, uh, the Congress. Well, it certainly uh, puts to bed any uh, misconceptions that our bureaucracy is uh, slow-moving. Uh, the events <laughs> have shown that we can move on a dime when we need to. Um, I was also heartened to see WikiLeaks offer up Julian Assange to chair the super secret U.S. Russia. I think we should invite him over right away. Uh, I think he so, should, you know, he should, he should, he should land at JFK and we will have something for him. <laughs> yes, I'm sure we will. Uh, I, 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 th I thought it was remarkable. Uh, you also referred to Congress, just the very frank comments that a number of members of Congress made over the weekend in response to what they were seeing uh, was, I think, uh, somewhat new from a political perspective to yeah, it was a, a remarkably hostile to uh, uh, to President Trump and kind of dismissing the idea that a cybersecurity unit would ever make sense. It was a, it was a surprise. Now, I, I'm one, uh, you, and you know this about me, I'm always in favor of engagement if right. it's possible, and so I don't think we should turn away the idea of talking to Russia about our cybersecurity concerns uh, in some form, and I, I hope that that's not off the table, um, but the idea that we would be cooperating with them, uh, which is what was insinuated at least, uh, seemed a lot different than what we heard two weeks ago about cooperating with Israel and the UK, for example. So what do you, how do you think this 
idea emerged uh, uh, from uh, the uh, the discussion. Uh, it, it, there's there's a way in which. Uh, uh, this is a standard Putin response. We said, you hacked us. And he said, where's your proof? Uh, you know, let's, let's convene uh, something to have an endless discussion about uh, whether we really did it and how you caught us. Uh, I, and, uh, and obviously he could have brought it up in that context. It's also possible that this was, uh, uh, President Trump's sort of, uh, insight in the middle of the, uh, meeting. And he thought, well, this would be a good idea. Why don't we try that? Uh, and without much, um, prior uh, digestion in the interagency process. Uh, I, I could not tell, but he seemed briefly to think it was a great idea, which <laughs> made me think it might have been his. Uh, I, and then he walked away from it, which also suggested that uh, it wasn't something that he felt he needed to stick with after having given his word to Putin. Yeah, a, a third possibility might be this is something that the U.S. government often does in a bilateral meeting is when you have a difficult issue, you agree to continue talking about it somehow. Right. And it could have just been packaged in a way that just came, sounded wildly different than what the State Department briefers intended when they put together the talking points. So I, the, the one thing that I was puzzled by, or at least uh, uh, skeptical about, is the suggestion that he didn't do enough in this meeting. Uh, you know, the, uh, he wasn't going to get... Putin to fall down and say, oh, my God, you're right. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I, I, all he was going to get, it, you know, spending 40 minutes on it, um, if you spend the right 40 minutes, sensitizes Putin about the costs of this and the likelihood that uh, the president's going to go from that meeting to say, what can we do to make sure he never does that again? Uh, um, and that's about all you're going to get. You're never going to get uh, anything other than a pretty... Uh, um, uh, direct denial and uh, uh, defiance. Yeah. Uh, so I, is there something else that uh, if we'd had a different president, uh, uh, if this had been Hillary Clinton, that she could have done in that meeting that the president didn't do? I, I think that's fair. I mean, I, I think there was a lot of talk going into the meeting about whether he would even bring up the issue right. of election hacking. He clearly did. I don't think anybody is disputing that. Um, I think one thing that's different that has often happened is the, out, the, the readout of the meeting afterward is almost as important as the, the meeting right. itself. And, 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 they, and they, we, we, you know, we, we did not stick the readout. No, we, <laughs> we didn't. Uh, so I, I think that's what was lacking here. Yeah, I, because, you know, at some point, after you spent 40 minutes on it, you have to say, okay, let's move on. And you, you can predict that the other side is going to say, well, we've moved on from that. Uh, the president himself said, well, let's move on. Right. I, and I, it would have been easy to say, you know, well, I made it clear that uh, we're not done. Uh, and uh, they, uh, they just weren't as ready to do the readout as they should have been, probably. Right, right. And then the, if the readout consists of a, a series of tweets that are really hard to understand, that just further muddles where, where we landed. So. This is, this is, this is uh, we've got four years of this coming, I, I think. Uh, okay, um, let's, let's start talking about some of the uh, other issues uh, that are kicking around. Uh, uh, many of them international, uh, um, you know, are, are, Putin's not our only adversary in cyberspace. It looks as though the EU thinks it is as well, since everybody in the EU is ganging up on Google. Uh, um, uh, the uh, uh, it's really now a couple of weeks ago that uh, uh, the European Commission uh, Competition Bureau proposed to impose a 2.7 
billion dollar fine on actually I don't remember whether it's euros or dollars, but uh, <laughs> two point seven million billion of something, uh, <laughs> and uh, um, for favoring its own shopping service uh, over others uh, uh, in doing searches. And that seems to be mainly focused on the fact that uh, Google had um, paid search results that they uh, uh, treated as basically advertisements. It's a little like uh, going after the New York Times for putting advertisements on its front page you know you shouldn't do that uh, that's that's it's favoring uh, your own content over important news stories that you're <laughs> leaving out i uh, but it was typical of uh, the eu that they would set a record in fines against a u.s tech company that's that, that seems to be what they uh that part of their strategy uh, uh misbegotten as it may be to uh try to build a tech uh sector of their own uh and then the um the brexiting uh uh, uh privacy commissioner in the UK uh, went after the National Health Service for providing uh, 1.6 million records uh, uh, to a Google subsidiary called DeepMind uh, that was trying to come up with ways to identify early signs of uh, uh, particular diseases. Uh, uh, and they uh, they were testing their app, uh, and they got this data so that they could test it. Uh, uh, and the theory on which they got it was, well, we're providing assistance to people who are treating these people, mm -hmm. uh, these patients. And uh, so we have the same consent that the doctors have. Uh, and, of course, people do want uh, their doctors to know everything about their health. Uh, um, and in, notwithstanding that, uh, the, the privacy commissioner found a way to say this was illegal. Yeah, I think uh, it's it's an interesting case for a, a number of reasons. Uh, w one is just the the very public way in which the uh, the UK authorities rolled out the remedy, uh, which was really directed actually at the National Health Service itself and not at the Google subsidiary that was involved. Uh, two is that there was there was no fine or other penalty imposed uh, coming out of this, as I understand it. UK authorities do have at least some limited civil right. and penalty authorities. Uh, none were imposed here, which leads me to think at least that this was a little bit more of a mixed case than uh, might meet the eye. So I think, don't you think, I mean, this is the problem with medical privacy. We all say it's really important. Our medical privacy is really important to us. The only thing that's more important is that everybody who's treating us has to know everything that they need <laughs> to know to treat us. Uh, and there is a fundamental uh, tension between those two goals. Uh, the data has to be instantly accessible across a wide range of uh, professionals who may uh, never have seen you before you were run over by the bus, uh, mm -hmm. but who have to know uh, what your uh, allergies are to p uh, particular medicines. Uh, and at the same time, you want to make sure that that data doesn't get out. Um, this clearly was aimed at assisting uh, uh, patients. And if DeepMind weren't owned by Google, my guess is this would have been buried with a uh, uh, a quiet meeting saying, eh, you know, if 
you're helping somebody build their app as opposed to providing mm-hmm. services, uh, maybe you shouldn't give them a lot of data. <laughs> yeah. On the other hand, if you're Google, you're probably pretty happy with how things turned out yeah, with true. the UK uh, relative to how things went with the EU. That's right. On average, they've yeah. only been buying 1.35 billion. <laughs> uh, yeah, and, and I think what's interesting about the Google uh, uh, competition uh, decision is it was for being dominant and then abusing dominant position. No one knows what abusing dominant position means. It's just whatever strikes the fancy of the regulators. And it, it, probably the most significant thing here, uh, to my mind, is it lays bare just how regulatory um, antitrust law is. So we all used to think of it as, oh, it's just trying to make sure there's competition. But when once you start saying abuse of dominant position is more or less anything that your competitors complain about that we agree with, uh, it, it makes clear you're basically saying you're so big that you're a regulated industry, you just didn't know it, and it's going to cost you the $2.7 billion to discover the fact that you are regulated. And from now on, uh, before you do anything... Check with us. Mm-hmm. I think it's 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 true. It's hard to put one's finger on exactly what uh, what was behind the market domination uh, theory. It's also interesting, though, that a lot of the companies that were complaining in this case, uh, as, as I understand it, at least, were U.S. companies. These were not necessarily European firms, but uh, a lot of Google's competitors here in the U.S. often complain about. Google's uh, placement of its own products and advertising in a way that uh, suggests something other other than they are just mere advertisements. So you have Yelp and others who've been pretty public uh, in their uh, concern about a number of Google's practices, not just this one. So if they can't innovate uh, sufficiently to be competitive technologically, at least they can innovate uh, uh, successfully in public policy lobbying. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, it's, it's kind of sad for, for Europe that even the also rans are American uh, that they're they're trying to protect. Uh, uh, there was a great uh, one of one of our faithful listeners sent me a a great op-ed uh, written of all places in the Guardian. Uh-huh. Uh, he said, you know, it, it it just trashes the EU's decision as as uh-huh. a, a, an indication of just how far from competitive uh, uh, European uh, um, uh, industry is. Uh, he said, you know, if even the Guardian is on your side, Stuart. You may be onto something. Uh, <laughs> it, uh, I should note, though, that um, it's by a fellow named Antonio Garcia uh, Garcia Martinez, uh, uh, who wrote one of the best books on Silicon Valley I have ever read called <laughs> Chaos Monkeys, Mayhem Inside the Silicon Valley Money Machine. Uh, and, and it is one of those books that is so funny that you can be convinced you, could, you were absolutely convinced that this man will never work in Silicon Valley again. <laughs> uh, it, it's, it was hilarious and deeply insightful. Uh, uh, so uh, the, uh, the, the idea that competition law is really a form of regulation uh, it, it strikes me as significant now that China has built an entire com- 
competition antitrust capability that I think we all, or at least the United States, thought was a wonderful thing. Oh, yeah, great. This means they're really committed to competition. No, I think it turns out they're really comp- re- committed to regulating Western companies to a fairly well. Uh, uh, and they're probably better at it than uh, uh, the Europeans because they actually have a domestic industry to protect. Uh, but this was an, another development uh, in the news of the week, which was that uh, um, a an internet regulatory association in China announced that there were going to have to be um, auditors reviewing every single video and uh, uh, photograph posted online to make sure that it conformed to uh, uh, you know Chinese public values. Yeah, that's right. Uh, so this was the uh, China Netcaster Services Administration or Association announcement from about 10 days ago, uh, which has gotten uh, a lot of press and has actually resulted in the shutdown of some Chinese social media web- websites already. Uh, the core socialist values, which they are protecting, are things like competition that, if you read the list, yeah. sounds like uh, very uh, things that we in the United States really uh, value as well. Democracy is on the list, for example. Uh, here, I- I'm not sure what the uh, measuring stick will be for uh, the two auditors who are viewing every single tweet and social media publication and video that's out there on the Chinese internet. But uh, you know, we we laugh at that. But the, the Europeans have, been, with the threat of fines, have have gotten a, uh, Facebook to hire hundreds, if not thousands, of Filipinos and and Europeans as well to uh, to review content, uh, to find content that uh, European regulators disapprove of and get it down, uh, mostly what they would describe as hate speech, anti-Islamic, anti-immigrant, maybe a little pro-terrorism. Mm-hmm. Um, so... In this respect, I'm not sure that uh, China is leading so much as following leads elsewhere. <laughs> well, I, I, I think that the China, Chinese initiative was really focused on things like uh, sexually exp- explicit videos uh, and other things that uh, probably aren't the target of the European uh, monitors so much. Um, but I think that's a fair point. Even in the U.S., we've had debates about uh, how to inform social media companies about uh, potentially troubling uh, messages that may violate the social media company's own user policy, for example. Uh, the, the, the dialogue is a little different. Uh, we have the First Amendment. Uh, we've got to keep that in mind. But uh, we face some of the same things here as well. Well, that's a great segue to the last topic that I wanted to cover, which is that it was that there was a story telling us that uh, um, Facebook is fighting some uh, local D.C. prosecutors. Uh, it looks like the uh, D.C. prosecutors, uh, certainly in the uh, uh, D.C. courts, uh, um, uh, subpoenas trying to get information from Facebook. Uh, there is some indication, if I remember right, uh, and Josh looked at this, uh, that uh, this is probably the result of criminal investigations into the disruptive and occasionally violent um, protests around uh, President Trump's uh, uh, inauguration. Uh, uh, and Boatloads of companies have filed amicus briefs, and the amicus briefs are available, so we we can get a feel for what issues are going to be raised. And Josh, what uh, what uh, precedent do we expect to come out of uh, uh, the uh, the cases that have been filed? Uh, yeah, so as you mentioned, we're sort of limited in what we know at this point. 
Um, but what the amici would like to see, the, the precedent they would like to see set is, uh, to see these prior, with the, the order in the DC Superior Court that Facebook is appealing was a non-disclosure order. So these warrants were asking for a lot of information about three Facebook accounts and they order. And they said, you're not allowed to tell the person who owns the account that this uh, uh, warrant has been served. Exactly. Uh, and so this, the amici are claiming that this is a prior restraint on speech and it's content based. You can't tell them about this specific thing. Uh, so it should be subject to strict scrutiny. Um, and they make a variety of arguments about why uh, the uh, this non-disclosure order uh, should be rescinded. First, that the statute it's based on section 2705b is too broad the requests themselves they've said are too broad they ask for all contents of communications identifying information other records related to the three facebook accounts uh they also say there's little value in a gag order when the events in question which allegedly are the yeah exactly the inauguration about as public as it gets um, and also, Facebook has already preserved the requested information to protect it from any tampering. So I, 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 some of this is, is pretty plausible. It is a prior restraint. If you say to somebody you can't talk about this, it mm-hmm. makes sense. I, I, I have to say I'm puzzled by the idea that saying, I've served you this subpoena, you can't talk about it, is a content-based restriction. Yes, it is, but not for – it doesn't raise any of the reasons we usually find content-based restrictions – Problematic. If they had said, uh, oh, you're right, it's content-based. I tell you what, don't say anything about anything. Mm-hmm. Right? Would that have been better? No. I, I, so I, I'm just not sure that that is particularly persuasive. But I am persuaded by the idea that uh, telling people that they're the subject of a search warrant uh, where they don't have the ability to destroy the data um, doesn't pose the same risks that it would if uh, um, you were telling them you were carrying out a search uh, warrant, uh, uh, and they still had an ability to hide evidence. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree with that. I think one of the stronger arguments that was made by all three of these briefs was the idea that the individuals themselves that are using Facebook are really in the best position to uh, protect their own constitutional rights and to oppose. So they should, they, yeah. And so you, you have to tell them so that they can go in and, and object, I guess. Um, I, I suppose there would be an argument that said, um, we're trying to, we're, we're obviously looking at these individuals, but they weren't alone. This was a conspiracy. It was a conspiracy hatched in part on uh, uh, social media by exchanging messages. We don't know everybody who exchanged those messages. And if we allow these three individuals to say, yes, this is what has happened to me. I'm, I'm uh, under investigation. Here's my screen name. Um, everybody who sent messages to that person or who, uh, um, and then also to others, is going to delete everything before Facebook can get to it. Uh, I think that's probably what the prosecutors had in mind. Uh, um, I think there was a concern that there weren't, um, uh, again, the underlying search was so broad, it wasn't, you know, the tag word of inauguration or protest, or it was 
all contents of communications. And so the ACLU in particular uh, cited a case relating to essentially uh, uh, where the prosecutors had swept in or the uh, police had swept in and collected the, as the Supreme Court referred to it as like the library of a communist party uh, affiliate. And the idea that you can't just get everything in order to then pick out and for three months by the way this is a 90 day uh, a 90 days that they would have it and so i think that's really what the underlying concern was so i but uh, the countervailing consideration is none of this was secret none of this was just something that you kept uh, that the the, uh, the person uh, generating it's not like this is stored data that that person was looking at or reading these are communications that have been widely shared with a variety of people on facebook uh, but not everybody in the world right. and that that i think diminishes the privacy claim if it doesn't uh, uh, eliminate it. Uh, uh, this, if I remember right, this is not the first time this issue has come up, and other courts have also more or less said, yeah, we do think that there's a, there's a special obligation to justify these, uh, these gag orders. It's not just a question of um, meeting some legitimate state interest. Uh, and so if I had to guess, that's the most likely outcome here is that there will be some restrictions imposed on the ability to, to get gag orders. Uh, it seems like that may happen, but also these, uh, uh, these 2705 requests, it sounds like, have been, uh, one of the briefs noted, sort of routinely uh, approved. And so uh, it may be kind of a, a situation where the court tries to strike a middle ground there. Yeah. Okay. Josh, thank you very much. Uh, and now let's uh, go on to our interview. All right. Our interview today is with Jim Miller, who's the president of Adaptive Strategies uh, and uh, more relevantly, the co-chair of a defense science board report on deterrence in cyberspace uh, uh, and uh, uh, formerly the undersecretary for policy uh, at the Defense Department uh, during 2012-2014 and I, I think um, served through the whole um, administration, uh, uh, the whole Obama administration, starting as, I think, the principal deputy, uh, uh, Jim, is that right? Yeah, I started as principal deputy. I did leave uh, three years before the end of the administration, however. Ah, yes, of course. Uh, uh, probably just as well from my experience with the last three years. But I, I, I well, uh, what we are here to talk about is the report that you drafted, uh, uh, that the, the science board drafted, which is about deterrence, and it it really falls into two portions. One is, what's our current strategic posture? Uh, And then two, um, how can we deter uh, attacks? And I have to say, I got so depressed reading the strategic posture uh, that I uh, 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 it, it took me a while before I could get to your policy recommendations. Uh, mm. So I want to spend a little time on that uh, just because um, it was pretty chilling to have people with plenty of clearances uh, who had looked at this hard and understand strategy talking about what our posture is there. Because uh, basically, if I remember uh, uh, what you said, it was... Um, not look, good. It, yeah. Well, no, worse than not good. Bad. I, uh, being 
kicked around for our lunch money by the North Koreans and the Iranians, uh, 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 let alone what our uh, um, uh, near peers uh, in Russia and China could do, uh, and maybe even most troubling because I don't see this from the outside, uh, a suggestion that our uh, weapon systems, including our nuclear command and control, is not uh, completely beyond uh, question in terms of its security from attacks by the Russians and the Chinese. That's right, Stuart. Before I respond more substantively, I want to thank you for having me join today and also Note that I'm speaking for myself and not for the Defense Science Board or for the Department of Defense or, uh, or the U.S. government, of course. So the Defense Science Board report on cyber deterrence really identified three different big challenges that we faced. The first, as you said, was uh, being kicked around, and it's we described it as a death by a thousand hacks. Yep. And uh, uh, and noted the need to respond to those attacks, not to every attempt at penetration, but uh, to every attack and to have an approach and a policy and a plan for doing so. That's a today problem. The second problem we identified is is smaller today, but one we believe could be emerging over the next decade for sure, and that's the combination of the vulnerability of our critical infrastructure, uh, electrical power, financial sector, and so on, uh, the combination of its vulnerability with uh, an emerging and potentially significant vulnerability of our military forces and the infrastructure that directly supports them. And so many of our recommendations were on that score. And then in between those two is, is, was our judgment that today, while we are significantly vulnerable, uh, today a North Korea or an Iran would have a difficult time executing a catastrophic cyber attack. Right. Sony Entertainment, okay, they did that, right? Um, Iranian DDoS, uh, distributed denial of services, 2012-2013, yep. they did that. Not catastrophic, significant, but not catastrophic. We need to harden our critical infrastructure, at least to the point where we're not vulnerable to the North Koreans and Iran's of the world. Yeah, I would think so. And, and I, I have to say, you know, the North Koreans probably would have done more if they could have done more. But I thought that the... You know, I, I wasn't in government when the Iranians were doing the DDoS attacks on our banks, but it was almost contemptuously self-limited, right? They said, oh, it's Thursday. We're going to take a bank down for three hours. Uh, next Thursday, another bank comes down. Uh, uh, we won't work our weekends, and we won't work your weekends either because uh, we're nice guys. It was like they were showing what they could do without actually doing all that they could do. Is, is that how you read that? Yes, I think that's a very fair statement of what happened. Uh, the Iranians uh, could have sustained those attacks for longer periods of time, uh, and they most likely could have turned the dial up on the volume mm-hmm. and the impact of those attacks at any given point in time. Well, and after all, they, they did Shamoon. They did a lot of uh, destructive attacks in other countries. So they presumably could have done them here, picking a particular uh, uh, sector, and uh, uh, caused a lot of damage as well. I think it's plausible that they might have done so, um, and I, I think in a sense, as we're going to talk about deterrence, that in a sense there's an element of deterrence that probably was operating because if they right. did a Shamoon-like attack as they did on Saudi Aramco or on Qatar's uh, Roscos, uh, I think they may have expected a stronger response from the United States. And so I believe part of what's going on is uh, nations signaling to each other about what is 
below threshold yep. and what will is above threshold and will, will result in a stronger response. So I, 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 it seems to me that deterrence works both ways and Brian, jump in if you uh, I have thoughts on this. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, and I I can't help thinking that the Iranians were engaged in deterrence of us and a more aggressive response to their uh, nuclear program, uh, uh, a military response, uh, uh, and that in, a, in an odd way, the fact that they had alternatives if we launched a strike uh, that could really hurt us uh, uh, changed the dynamic for negotiating a deal on nuclear uh, uh, on their nuclear program. Stuart, I don't actually think that the Iranian DDoS attacks in 2012 and 2013 had an impact on the nuclear negotiations. Okay. I don't. I think that they were uh, closer to the noise level, not entirely at the noise level, uh, but not significant enough that they affected the U.S. negotiating position or drove the United States uh, or others to accept positions they would have not otherwise accepted. Okay. So you, you talked about people being deterred from launching attacks at the, on the United States uh, because of their fear that our reaction could be very aggressive, and I, I agree with you. Uh, but that's kind of a that's a sort of five-year advantage. Uh, if we keep doing nothing in response to these attacks, uh, uh, they're going to say, "Well, we can do that too." So we'll just—they'll—they'll they'll just keep uh, upping the ante to see what we respond to. And every time they do this and we respond not at all, uh, it makes them—it it, it makes it clear to everybody, uh, including citizens of the United States, that this is not going to get a big reaction. Uh, and I think the lack of a reaction on our part probably makes our citizens think, well, I guess that's no big deal. Uh, when uh, uh, Vladimir Putin doxes a candidate to the uh, for the presidency in, in the hopes of uh, defeating her, uh, I guess that's just how international politics works these days. And so we're really uh, losing ground every time a new attack occurs that we don't respond to. I agree with that. And, and, and it looks like Brian may want to come in as well. But l- let me just say that we, in the uh, Defense Science Board uh, uh, Task Force on Cyber Deterrence, we had a what I would characterize as a bipartisan group, one including both policy wonks and, 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 and you know, cyber and tech geeks. Uh, but one thing that this group agreed on was the principle that when the United States is attacked in cyberspace, that the United States should respond. The question should not be whether, but how to respond. Right. And I think that is a, an important guiding principle. There's a wide range of responses we can talk about, from diplomatic to economic sanctions to, you know, so forth and so on, that fall well short of a military response. Uh, but uh, the U.S. should be looking to impose costs on those who attack. Again, not every cyber intrusion, or that's all we'd be doing. Right. And there's there's tens of thousands or millions of potentially intrusions that occur uh, across the across the nation on a, on a on a given week but when it's an attack when it's a malicious attack intended to uh, do damage to US national security or to um, uh, or to companies uh, operating in the United States uh, then there should be a response Brian 
I would just question the premise that there hasn't been a response to, and I, I think it's important to think about what the appropriate proportionate response is in response to a specific incident. It's clear that our adversaries are focused on our ability to respond. You see that as recently as two weeks ago in the GGE, where neither China nor Russia would allow us to talk about countermeasures, and they right. don't want us to talk about self-defense, in part because they're afraid that that's, those are the very topics that we're developing and that we're thinking about. So I don't think that, I, I think if anything, the opposite is true, that our adversaries know and believe that we're focused on responses and they're increasingly concerned about what we might think is an appropriate response. Well, I, you know, an appropriate response, a proportionate response is one that makes the, the attacker never want to do that again, <laughs> uh, as opposed to something that's symbolic. Uh, and I, I, I do think, I mean, it's hard to, to see any response that we've had to an attack thus far that would have left the attacker thinking, wow, I never want to do that again. Do you think the North Koreans feel that uh, the Sony thing was a, a bad deal for them, uh, worked out badly? Uh, I, certainly, I don't think Putin, uh, well, he may not be happy with the, with the guy he got the help to get elected, but uh, I, I don't think he feels that the President Obama's response means he should never try that again. I, yeah, I'm not sure what Putin feels about any of this, but I don't, I don't think he is relishing the amount of publicity that his actions uh, have received over the last several months at minimum. Okay. Uh, uh, fair enough. Well, uh, this is, this is sort of what the heart of the report is, as I see it. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, and Stuart, I, I, I just want to interject yep. quickly. I, I think the, the cyber aspect of what Russia did in, uh, in hacking our election our presidential election uh, was an enabler in this case. The real the real game was in, essentially information operations right. and, and so forth. Uh, but and I'll say that I think the price has been inadequate uh, to Putin to date, uh, and that we should be looking at much more significant economic sanctions. And that the and that although we are not seeing signs that the Trump administration will do so at this point, it's not too late to do so. And we could put them in place. We could leave them in place at least through our midterm right. elections, if not through the next presidential elections. Give the Russian uh, government some incentives uh, uh, not to uh, do this again. So uh, the Senate uh, has uh, adopted a lot of sanctions, a surprisingly large number of uh, of sanctions uh, against Russia that no one was expecting, and and the the vote was ninety eight to two in mm-hmm. favor of uh, uh, adopting really secondary uh, sanctions, so that um, people who invested in the infrastructure, the energy infrastructure in China, uh, even if they were from um, Germany could be sanctioned for having done so. So in Russia, uh, yes, for for having invested in Russian uh, energy. Um, a, and anyone that, affiliated with the military or intelligence yes, sector, there fair, was a it, number it, of it, categories. It was very aggressive, yes. and and ironically, uh, the the biggest squawks are coming from Germany uh, and German companies who uh, have a lot riding on being able to participate in some of these deals. Uh, uh, so uh, there are always unintended consequences from uh, imposing sanctions. Uh, but l- let me l- let me take this back to the report. The, you, you start with the proposition that uh, uh, our, uh, our defensive capabilities are nowhere near what our offensive capabilities are, and, uh, and that's true for people who might choose to attack us as well, and uh, that attacks could be really quite devastating for the civilian population in a significant way. Uh, and therefore, right. we have to, uh, we don't want to be in a 
trading of offensive measures, if we can avoid it, we want to deter attacks. Uh, and That's right. you kind of laid out two ways to deter attacks that I thought were useful uh, constructs. Uh, one was deter by denial, and the other was deter by cost imposition. What do you mean mm-hmm. by deter by denial? Deterring by denial, Stuart, means uh, to put in place a combination of defensive measures and resilience uh, in the in your critical infrastructure and in your in your IT systems, so that the attacker is not going to be able to achieve what the attacker would like to achieve. Okay. Uh, and that resilience can be uh, focused on the IT, but mm-hmm. it can also be in the in your ways to work around the problem. And to, and this is what I mean by resilience, and in your ways to use other uh, systems, including going back when necessary to. Um, uh, uh, using less sophisticated IT or to using a, a, a paper and pencil in some mm-hmm. instances. Yeah. I, okay. That 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 makes perfect sense. Uh, um, to do that, you have to have a lot of authority over the critical infrastructure of the United States, mostly private sector uh, uh, players. Uh, I didn't see a lot in the Defense Science Board report on how do we get private sector players to shore up their defenses in an uneconomic fashion. I'm happy to comment on that, but first let me explain why we left it out. Mm-hmm. Um, number one is that it is the defense science board. <laughs> yes. uh, and so uh, we looked at current trends. We looked at trends in both our uh, nation's defensive posture and in the potential offensive capabilities of our adversaries, and we saw offense continuing to go up mm-hmm. rapidly, uh, faster than Moore's Law. Um, offensive capabilities are growing, and offensive side can be m- much more selective. They've got to get right once, and they can get inside and move right. laterally. Uh, uh, and so they they don't have as hard a job as defense. So given that trend, what we uh, rather than attempting to do a report on uh, how do you uh, get better at defense and resilience on the electrical grid, or mm-hmm. how do you get better at defense and resilience of the financial sector, and so on. We focused uh, predominantly on what the Department of Defense should do, uh, and that uh, because uh, there are vulnerabilities in current uh, military systems, one of our focuses was to ensure that 10 years from now, as, this, as the capacity of our adversaries goes up, at least we'll be able to have military responses if necessary. Right, to, that when to we any, push that button, something happens. To any devast- exactly, to any <laughs> devastating responses on our critical infrastructure. And so that a lot of the report was really on, on that problem, which I don't believe is severe today. It's right. present today. But I think that it's, it's significantly growing, and we have time as a military. The Department of Defense has time to catch up and indeed get ahead of it selectively for the most important systems for a strike. What's including. involved in doing that? Uh, uh, what, do you ha- what, what do you have to do to, uh, uh, with contractors to make sure that uh, critical military systems still function? So – First thing you have to do is be selective right. and not attempt to, Fix if everything. you will, boil the ocean. and Don't try to make everything highly cyber resilient and protected. You can't do it. You can't afford it. And so we recommended focusing on three categories. One is nuclear, as you mentioned mm-hmm. before. Second is other long-range strike, conventional long-range strike, things like the, the B-52s. B- B-52 or the new B-21 bomber, right. uh, things like the uh, the JASM ER missile, the mm-hmm. uh uh, and other standoff weapons. And then the third category, which we could talk about if you like, is offensive cyber. Part of your offensive cyber capabilities actually need to be cyber resilient. Now, that sounds hard. 
uh, but I, we can we can talk about that separately. So not first, not, not world where first Hal part Martin is, and uh, Edward Snowden are are, are talking about stuff. Uh, uh, that that is a, an example hard. of uh, lack of resilience in your offensive capabilities. There's no question. There's no question. So, so number one is be selective, and this is a, this to do those three categories uh, of nukes, a subset of long range strike, and a subset of offensive cyber is something that is feasible, could be done. Would be very costly, but could be done over a 10-year time frame and really improve our position. And we talked in the report talked about some of the steps that could be taken uh, um, from advanced technologies mm-hmm. to retro tech. Uh, right. uh, and you want to you want a portfolio of approaches because if you do the same thing to protect every system, the bad guys just got to figure it out once. Right. And so uh, re- we recommended a program focused on developing this portfolio and then applying it to these to these essential programs, and we gave some examples. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's 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 the fundamental thing that you can do to bolster a fundamental thing you can do to bolster our posture f- uh, to ensure we'd be able to respond even against uh, the most capable adversaries like a Russia or China five to ten years down the line. So what? Uh, we mostly hear in response to deterrence uh, uh, proposals is, uh, um, one, we aren't sure we can do the attribution, right? Uh, and two, we're worried about escalation. Uh, and you talked about both of those issues in the report. Yeah, uh, I'll take them in reverse order. On escalation, if you respond, there's a risk of escalation. Mm-hmm. If your policy is to never respond, then there's a certainty of one-sided escalation, and the problem is just going to get worse and worse for you. So we need to, as I've said before, uh, have a policy that says we will respond. The question is not whether but how. And then, you, and then this is where we got into the, into the advanced planning uh, uh, side of it and, and the idea that you need a playbook of responses. You need to think through what the potential escalatory responses may be, mm-hmm. and you have to think through actually how to deter them as well. And you want to save your hard hits for for deterring those counter moves so that the adversary doesn't doesn't find itself being able to uh, no pun intended trump uh, your next move and, and and that's you know a, a big chunk of this report is about the details of coming up with that playbook and how to use it uh, I, and I thought that was that was very uh, you know, very DOD in the sense that there were a lot of steps, uh, <laughs> uh, and you could imagine them on a, a set of PowerPoint slides pretty easily. Um, it, but I guess my question is, is it really the case that we, you know, in 2015 did not have a set of playbooks for responding to, uh, uh, to a cyber attack, let's say a mid-level or a lower? We have been far too responsive and far uh, uh, or not I just say far too res- responsive uh, uh, and reactive mm-hmm. and we've not been proactive enough so yeah we um, there are ideas about the types of steps that could be taken in response what we're proposing is specific plans that are aimed at deterring specific adversaries and therefore holding at risk mm-hmm. what the leadership of those nations value and to think through in advance what the capabilities one needs in for Offensive cyber for economic sanctions for et cetera, uh, and to be prepared to employ them quickly. And then, if you want to deter, you, you ought to communicate in advance that you're planning. Yes, <laughs> right. <laughs> and then to communicate in advance and have a strategic plan to do so. And uh, this is not something that any administration has ever done well. Not just with right. respect to cyberspace, but in general. 
and I accept that, but it is doable, and I've seen it done in, 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 in some instances over, over the past 10 or 20 years. It can be done. I, I, was, I was in the Situation Room once when a DOD representative said, uh, um, you know, it's my observation that if you really have a complicated task that needs to be done well, um, government is the best way to do that the second time. Uh, it was a a kind of introduction to the idea that the first time government encounters a problem, they never handle it well. And, uh, we've had a series of first times with the, uh, with cyber attacks and we have yet to catch up. I I hope that we're learning and, uh, we need to capture that learning in a plan and we need to implement that, that plan. It's not, it's not a linear plan. We're going to have to adapt over time. There'll be choices to be made by the president, president at any given point in time. Um, but if you th- if you want to deter and not just respond, you have to have you have to have a plan and you have to communicate elements of that plan and those capabilities to your potential adversaries. And um, and that means let's suppose you're talking about using offensive capabilities because you know we'd rather use that than nukes. I'm sure um, a, the uh, uh, the if you're going to launch cyber attacks, you have to recognize that you're setting precedence. Yes. Uh, you are um, uh, stripping away uh, a, a reluctance on the part of your adversaries to use the same tools. And we've sort of seen that uh, um, where the adversary actually takes our tools and repurposes them so that they can be used for attacks. Uh, um, what do we do about the risk that uh, we're going to be opening up Pandora's box? Uh, and this is the this is the escalation issue. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but when you're actually faced with the prospect, um, the idea of escalating and not being sure how it's going to turn out is pretty troubling. It is. And uh, if you think about cyber weapons, there's the there's the chance that the weapon itself mm-hmm. could be reverse engineered or it could propagate by yep. itself. Uh, there's a chance that the adversary will decide that it wants to respond either in cyberspace and or elsewhere, yep. and that escalation can occur. Uh, and then there is the question of what are what are your norms? What are your expectations and and on, on rules of the road and um, and so forth with respect to the use of offensive cyber? All of that has to be considered. And to me, all of that is an argument to think it through, not in infinite detail in advance, but to think it through and plan it through in advance, to think through the types of steps We'd want to take, and it's a reason that for me, economic sanctions, while not the only tool in the toolkit, it's a, are a pretty good tool. The for, most attractive, are, right? Are, are pretty attractive. You know, add diplomacy, add legal action, as you know, mm-hmm. as we did with respect to China, uh, Chinese IP theft. Uh, but economic sanctions are an attractive tool, uh, in part because of that, because you're you're signaling that the other nation has violated a norm, and that they're going to be they're going to have cost imposed on them. Uh, uh, I do think that there are areas of offensive cyber where it would be, uh, from a policy perspective, certainly, and you and Brian can tell me about the legal side, uh, where it would be appropriate to respond uh, in peacetime uh, and to be clear that this was a limited response, uh, and it could range from attempting to uh, thoroughly block or negate their capability to do offense uh, uh, to uh, otherwise imposing costs, and it could be done uh, it could be done under a range of authorities. I think it's important for these issues to be thought through and to be communicated to the U.S. public and, and to be able to have these conversations with our allies and partners because uh, we don't want our response 
uh, to an attack on us or our allies and partners to then uh, uh, serve as a, as a mechanism to rupture our, our alliance or partnership. Right. So I, 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 I'm going to let Brian answer the uh, legal uh, uh, response since my view is we just do whatever works and then tell the lawyers to straighten it out. Uh, so, Brian, uh, you're Stuart Baker on cyber law. Exactly. In a nutshell. <laughs> uh, I, I think there's a lot to be said for setting up a framework in advance. Uh, you can't figure out all the details, as you said, Jim, but putting a framework out there publicly has a number of benefits, in, not just deterrence, but also uh, helping establish the norms that we'd be protecting. Um, and a lot of the tools that you mentioned, I think, are much more effective if they're not just us. If we have the Europeans and uh, in Japan and Canada and others saying, actually, we agree, an attack like that does merit a response of the nature uh, that the U.S. has articulated, then I think it's easier, it's more effective on the policy side, and it's easier to justify um, under the existing legal framework that we're operating under. Mm-hmm. So I... I just a couple of things in, in closing. I noticed that uh, the report says we should be prepared to respond to egregious uh, examples of cyber espionage where they're just stealing stuff, right, like the OPM attack, uh, that it just took data, uh, but data that we think uh, is very important to protect. Uh, um, and maybe I'm wrong, but I, uh, I detect in that an implicit criticism of General Clapper's statement that, uh, well, my hat's off to them. If I could have done this to them, I would have. And so I got no criticism. It was a very, uh, it, it struck me as the wrong response, even if it was uh, was true that uh, espionage is likely to occur and we're not likely to respond to all of it. Stuart, I heard Jim Clapper slightly differently, although although I think you're close. One is that uh, we, we shouldn't be outraged Right, we should just get even. Well, right. Well, that's 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 where I'm coming. That that okay. was number two for me, right? Uh, we shouldn't be outraged that our that our that our um, uh, uh, potential adversaries are engaging in espionage. Right. We do it. They do it. Uh, and so, for, for me, it, it, the analogy is if if you put a box of money out on your front porch every night, and then in the morning the money is gone, it's true that someone stole it, but the place you need to look first, and this I think is yes. what Clapper was saying, the place you need to look first is you. Stop putting the damn money, pardon my language, put, stop putting the money on the porch, put it in a safe. Protect it and act like it's important to you. That both will defend it better and make it more credible to have stronger response. And second, as you said, we've responded to egregious espionage in the past uh, by kicking out uh, uh, members of their uh, of the other side's diplomatic staff right. or, or or their spies and so forth, we've taken other actions that should be should it that should be on the table for this kind of action like OPM. So, how worried are you that as our response becomes more mechanical and predictable uh, uh, as as part of deterrence, um, that uh, people will start saying, if I can fake an attack. Uh, and pretend to be Iran, even though I'm actually uh, the United Arab Emirates, uh, um, and then get the United States to strike back at Iran. That's you know that's a twofer for me. Um, is is there um, is there a risk that attribution is going to ultimately fail uh, because of the inability to maintain a a, a good um, attack profile here? Stuart, there is absolutely a risk of both uh, false flag operations, yep. as you suggested, on the one hand, 
and not only a risk but a certainty based on past experience of proxy yes. uh, operations where a, a nation state may ask other actors to, to uh, uh, take cyber actions on its behalf. Those will happen. And the principal way that we're going to understand that those happen is not going to be through the technical or forensic analysis. It's going to be through um, a combination of other intelligence collections, whether it's human intelligence, signals intelligence, and so forth. But that integrated picture is has got to be put together, uh, and that's fundamental to attribution. The better we do on technical, right. on the technical side, the more we're able to share, which is important to building support. Uh, but the full intelligence capabilities of the United States need to be brought to bear as we think about attribution, and it's to me, it's more important to get it right than to get the response done in five minutes or two days or something else. Get it right, uh, get it, the support it, behind it, and like then it's, take it's, it. It's a it's a one to three week exercise to, to to do attribution here. Maybe maybe it's more than that, but it's it, it, it's not forever, uh, and it's not overnight. Yeah, we the the U.S. government has actually got significantly better at the forensic. Yes. Uh, and, and in part by working with more with the private sector, which has a number of firms that do it quite well, as you know, um, uh, and in part by its own work, including its uh, intelligence center on cyber that was established under the Obama administration. I think that helped. Um, so the timeline is shortening, uh, and it's good to keep on working on shortening that timeline mm-hmm. and on improving the quality of the intelligence and on particularly on the ability to share uh, that that information and that involves uh, uh, increasingly and substantially the private sector, but it, if you're going to take substantial steps in imposing costs on another nation that has for Russia or China nuclear capability and for others profound military and political implications, it's it's kind of important to get it right. So I don't mind I don't mind for example that the Obama administration took some time right. before it imposed costs. What I would have liked to have seen. And what I'd like to see now from this administration is more cost imposed for the Russia hack yeah. on our elections. Yeah, I, I absolutely. And, and that increasingly as people realize that there's always this attribution gap, doing it just before a change, you know, an election and a change in administration is the sweet spot for getting away with it. Uh, this is how Al Qaeda got away with the coal bombing. Uh, and uh, I think uh, uh, that it, it appears that Russia is getting away with their uh, their election hacking. It's up to this administration whether that's the case. Okay, deep breath. Um, Jim, thank you. We always give our uh, uh, guests an opportunity to tell us about papers they have coming out, speeches, events. Uh, is there anything that you'd like to uh, uh, talk about that you're uh, that you have as an upcoming event? Uh, Stuart, thank you. Um, <coughs> uh, I would refer people for this topic to the Defense Science Board report on cyber deterrence, available by the on the web. Uh, you do have to click on a link to get it, which is yeah, you know, which uh, is it's scary. <laughs> Uh, and other work I'm currently do- doing actually complements this. It's on the future of strategic stability yeah. uh, with respect to Russia and the impact of new technologies, including cyber, but also counter space, long-range strike, right. missile defense, uh, and other technologies, uh, autonomous systems. Uh, and they have a piece coming out on that in, in, the, in the relative near term uh, between the Belfer Center at Harvard and the Center for New American Security. Uh, co-authored with Richard Fontaine. Okay. Well, we'll be looking forward to that. Maybe you can come back and uh, tell us about Sounds that good. report, too. Sounds good. Jim, thanks very much. Pleasure. Thanks, Stuart. All right. Thanks, Brian. 
Okay, thanks to Jim Miller, Brian Egan, and Josh Holtzman. Uh, this has been episode 174 of the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Uh, if you've got uh, additional guests to suggest, uh, send us a note on cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com, and we will send you in return the coveted Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast mug. Coming up, we've got Eric Heisen, uh, former executive director of the Department of Homeland Security's Digital Service, and Dave Itell, who's the CEO of Immune. Unity Inc. We'll get those in in July, I believe, uh, uh, and then go on hiatus uh, for August uh, and back in September when we hope you'll join us uh, as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government. 